Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast. I'm your host, John Sherburn, and today we're talking to Dr. Stephanie Ware, a marine ecologist, conservation advisor, and global spokesperson at the Nature Conservancy. Stephanie focuses on marine ecology and conservation, coral reefs and climate change, and the impact of human health services on the environment. Stephanie, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing today? Doing all right. Happy to have you on the show. I'm excited to talk about a couple things. Um, I think the big two that I kind of am prepared to talk about are the coral reefs and sewage pollution angles okay. um, that you've looked at over your career. And I think it's cool because they're related, but there's a lot of, there's their own kind of things on both sides. So I'm excited to talk to you about those two things. To start, just a little backgrounds. Uh, from what I've read, you started your career off in the U.S. Virgin Islands uh, and you spent a few years there as a marine protected area specialist. Can you talk about what you did at that time and how that experience opened your eyes to what would become the rest of your career. Yeah, that's a great, I love to talk about that. It gives it, it's a nice backdrop for um, where, where I am actually even today. It's some of the work I did there has inspired the work I'm doing now, 20 years later. Um, so I actually started my work in the Virgin Islands as an intern and got thrown into, um, I, I guess I call it baptism by fire. My first job was, really um, way above my pay grade, given that I was working for free, I was um, asked to run a community stakeholder engagement process to um, develop the first territorial marine park in the U.S. Virgin Islands and then write a management plan for the marine park, designate the boundaries for the marine park, figure out the different use zones and what the rules were going to be like the whole thing, That's right? <laughs> um, all in, I did most of that work in about five or six months. And then I started officially with the nature conservancy after that. But so the very first thing I did was show up at community meetings and start meeting fishermen and yacht club members and government agent, you know, government representatives, people in the community to try to figure out how together we were going to design the first territorial marine park in the Virgin Islands. It was a really big deal because they had been trying to do it for about 30 years. And so there was a lot of, um, I was up against a lot of um, failed attempts and maybe even um, disbelief that it was possible to, to do it this time. What, how was this time going to be different? But I think there's um, a lot to be said for youthful naivete and, you know, optimism and thinking, sure, we can do this. Why can't we do this kind of um, attitude? And it, it propelled me through the process. And there is a Marine park in St. Croix because of it, the East end Marine park. And it was a period of a lot of learning for me, I would say, um, what I learned most was that being my first job in conservation was that conservation was about people. And I came into it thinking it was going to be about the science I had learned instead, you know, all of the work I'd done in graduate school, understanding how coral reefs work and the ecology of coral reefs. Um, and I thought that's what I was going to be using in my work. And what I actually ended up having to rely on were my people skills, my ability to understand what was driving different stakeholders, individuals, and groups, and figure out how we came together to do something together, how we found common ground to, to do something good for the community. Um, so luckily, I had those skills. It was complete and pure luck, um, honestly, and was able to accomplish what I was asked to do. I'd say that how that connects to what I'm doing today, there's a couple of different ways in which it connects. 
One is that I was working in a really isolated place. At the time, we had dial-up internet, so you didn't have access to a lot of information um, very easily, or peers, or even ways to Google something. Google was actually very new at the time. Um, And so the next job I took was um, a job where I was building a um, community of practice and a learning community around reef resilience. And I took my experience of being isolated with lack in a lack of access to information and, and tools to um, try to make it better for everybody else around the world, knowing that most people that work in coral reef conservation are working in isolation and don't have that kind of access to peers because they're just one little, you know, maybe one person on one little island country. And so a lot of my work since then has been about making it easier for people to do their work wherever they are in the world by getting the resources to them, synthesizing information for them, providing best practices, learning opportunities, whatever it may be just having struggled through that so much in my time, I spent about four years in the Virgin islands um, and just understanding how difficult it was to make any progress, let alone know what the best way was to go about something. So, um, and then the other connection to my current work, because I'm working now really um, focused on addressing sewage pollution was that I drove over a raw sewage flow every day on the way to work in my car. I smelled it every morning because I had this, you know, I had to, I was very cliche. I had a little Island Jeep with um, no air conditioning and no windows. So every day I drove over this raw sewage flow that went through the town of Christianstead. It was going into the Harbor right over the very reefs that I was working to protect there. And And that always bothered me that this was just a norm and an accepted aspect of daily life. And as I began to, when I left the Virgin Islands and started to work all over the world, I realized that it's just raw sewage everywhere. And um, again, knowing what I know about this, of the ecology of coral reefs, I knew this had to have been a problem, but it just wasn't getting the attention it deserved. So over many, many years of seeing that, I finally decided to get more curious about it and start doing something about it. And that's what I'm doing now. The sewage issue is interesting because when you go, if you go to other countries in some places, it's a little more in your face. And so it might seem like that's a big issue there. Uh, but the reality is it's a big issue here as well. We just do a much better job of hiding some of our waste issues. And um, I mean, I wanted to get into more of this later, but it's kind of naturally going there now. So can you talk about, even just in our country, some of, some of these issues we face? Because I think a lot of people don't, really think about the fact that the garbage you put in the can goes somewhere else and doesn't right. magically disappear, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is one of the challenges of this particular problem, whether it's in a developed country like the U S or in a tropical Island um, country that may be, a, you know, more of a developing country. It's invisible. Sewage pollution is generally invisible. It's not like plastic pollution where you can see it and get grossed out by it. It generally, you you don't see it going into the water unless you are standing at the opening of a sewage outfall pipe, right? And so um, it is an invisible problem. And a lot of the work we're focused on is making this invisible problem visible and trying to figure out the best ways to do that, which um, we are figuring out. It's it's really fun um, challenge. But you know, the U.S. is is kind of a crazy example. And I use the U.S. as an example a lot when I talk about this problem because people assume this is a developing world problem. And so just to give you some examples. So um, 
New York City, a, a lot of cities, and New York City is a great example of this, have what's called a combined sewer overflow system. And that means that their stormwater pipes and their sewer pipes are connected to each other. And that whenever it rains, um, the, the wastewater management system, the water treatment plants can't handle all of that extra water flowing through. And so by design, they just open everything up and discharge into the nearest body of water. And so in the Hudson, um, in the Hudson Basin in New York City, they discharge about 27 billion gallons a year of that stormwater and raw sewage untreated into the Hudson River Basin. Um, the U.S. discharges 1.2 trillion gallons a year through this system. And it's I, just to give you a sense of that, because I know that's hard. I'm going to say it's, huge number. It's right? roughly I did the math a few months ago, and I think pretty sure this is right. It was 90 million Olympic size swimming pools. It's a still right? impossible number exactly. to wrap your head around, even, even that. Exactly. Know? Right. So it's a tremendous amount. And that doesn't account for all the septic systems that are leaking and all the other things that we know about that happen. There's a lot of leaky pipes in the U S there are about a million miles of sewer pipes that need to be replaced at this point. So um, it's, it's, it's no joke. While we we've had the infrastructure, we haven't taken very good care of it. It's time to actually replace all of that, all of those pipes. Some of them are hundred, 140 years old. So they're leaking. People know about this when they have burst pipes in their community and things like that. Um, so yeah, gonna, I'm, it's a mess. I'm glad you did that. I'm glad you said that quote because it was actually one of the one of the statistics I was going to bring up was that exactly that 1.2 trillion number, uh, and that was from a paper you published. I think this, in March. I think this is when the paper came out that. I saw that that number, and at least I guess I'll ask. I assume that a lot of the issue with sewage pollution is overpopulation, where this kind of stuff worked for a while, and there's just more and more people. We're not updating things. You said it's a hundred years old in some places. Is it? Do you think it's overpopulation that's the main concern, or just a lack of funding? Yeah. So I think the systems that have been designed. So, for example, these combined sewer overflow systems. They were designed at a time in which nobody could have ever imagined the de population density that we currently have. So, so yes, there is a mismatch between the number of people and the infrastructure that we have, for sure. Um, we have not kept up with um, our population growth in terms of providing the infrastructure that we need to persist. But even so, a combined sewer overflow system would never work now it, it's not it's not what you yes. would put into place at this point right because too many people it's too many people <laughs> literally sorry but too much shit going into the ocean yes <laughs> um and so you have to think of other ways to solve this problem and they are there are places in the world in the u.s and in you know the netherlands actually is great examples of how they are re-engineering their systems so that they're no longer dumping um, their stormwater into their sewer systems they're actually Re, they're diverting it so that it ends up going back into the aquifer and recharging the aquifer so that it can be used as drinking water and other other the other ways we use water for agri agriculture whatever um, instead of it being ultimately wasted by getting contaminated by sewer um, or sewage water and um, needing all this extra energy to treat it and get it clean and make it safe so they are separating um, these flows which is a really great strategy to use. 
Um, but there's lots of really cool technologies and strategies out there to actually eliminate waste from the situation altogether and actually take that waste and turn it into um, a resource, right? It actually, the components of our sewage are actually very, very valuable to us. And we just aren't capturing that value um, effectively right now. I think that that environmental, that environmentally friendly aspect is important. The fact that just because it's waste doesn't mean we have to waste it um, kind of concept. Can you talk more about some of those potential solutions we talk like some of the technologies or I know like constructed wetlands are kind of big. That's a yeah. huge concept. And so can you talk about some of those solutions? So I think this is one of the many problems that we all think of as almost unsolvable for a regular person where it's, what are we going to do kind of thing? So if you could talk about yeah. what we can do, I think that would be a nice cap on the, on the topic. Yeah. So I, so I like to think about the work we're doing is taking waste out of wastewater, right? And so stop thinking of it as waste because you have got nitrogen and phosphorus in there, right? Really important for growing food. And in fact, phosphorus is a limited resource. You could think of it as oil. It's it, we don't have an unlimited supply. It's not like nitrogen. Um, there will be a point where we don't have enough phosphorus to grow our food if we don't start recapturing it. Um, and then you've got water, right? Water is one of the most precious and most essential resources as humans or any living thing on the planet needs. So we're dumping it. We're actually polluting our environment rather than capturing it, right? So you can turn a household sewage, okay? You can turn it into fuel, but you can actually transform it into um, a biofuel, uh, either through a coal or biogas. You can turn it into fertilizer, and you can capture that water and make it safe enough to drink. So there are actually places that do this in the U.S. already. Um, Orange County, Southern California, has been doing what they call toilet to tap. So taking their wastewater and turning it into drinking water for 30 years. LA, wow. LA County has made a commitment. I think it's by 3035 or 2035. 3035. 3035. That's way yeah. too far in the future. <laughs> Sorry. It's, I think it's 3035. Um, 2035. 2035 yes. Thank you. <laughs> I'm a futurist. Sorry. I forgot yeah. To wow. That. Very far. Um, we don't even know if we'll be around. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, um, they are going to be 100% um, toilet to tap in LA County. Um, so, so it's, Singapore does this already. Singapore is actually like a tourist destination for people to go see how Singapore manages their wastewater. Um, so there are already all kinds of really interesting um, innovations for, to do this, right? So yes. the thing that got me really excited about this was um, when I learned about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's Reinvent the Toilet Project. They started this around, I want to say 2011 or 2012. Um, and their, their ask, it was kind of like an X prize sort of thing where you say, okay, we're going to give, you know, hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars. I don't know what the prize was to whoever can design a toilet that costs less than five cents a person a day, doesn't use water, septic or electric um, that generates some kind of good like electricity, fertilizer, clean water and doesn't pollute the environment. So all of a sudden there was this explosion and in innovation around um, toilet technologies, which really hadn't seen a whole lot of innovation since a couple of hundred years ago, actually, when mm -hmm. the, when the toilet, the toilet that we pretty much use now um, was invented. 
So um, that has spurred this whole new space of innovation and testing of different types of technologies. And it, can, it continues on and the Gates Foundation still supports um, this development um, of technology. And their challenge at this point is trying to figure out how to scale it, how to make it affordable, how to get it to the places that really need these toilets. Um, I should go back and say that this was inspired by the global sanitation crisis. So there are, it's really the most important thing to bring, to talk about. I should have mentioned that first, sure, but yeah. there are 4.5 billion with a B people that don't have access to safe sanitation on the planet. So more than half of our population doesn't have access so that you can immediately tell you that we've got a lot of, of shit in the environment because of that, because it's not getting, um, it's not getting treated. It's not getting contained. It goes somewhere. It goes somewhere, yeah, so, but it's yeah, not. Exactly. It's not being managed. And and of those people, two and a half billion don't have any safe toilet. So they don't. There, there's a lot of what they call open defecation happening in many parts of the world. Um, if it's on an in an island scenario, we call it ocean defecation because usually it's actually happening at the beach. Um, there's like a beach that's like the community toilet. And you definitely want to know where that is if you're visiting so that you do not end up swimming Tourist in it. Trap. Yeah. Um, I've actually had, I've, I've had a friend that had a horrible story of accidentally swimming in the local toilet. Um, oh. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty that's, that's disgusting. Horrible. I don't even need the details no, to know how bad no, of a story that is. Pretty, it's a pretty great story. Audience, use your imagination. Pretty great story, actually. Oh, geez. Ended up, yeah. Anyway, that's just such <laughs> a good story. But um, so I, yeah. So there are just, there are billions of people that don't have the most basic need met for them on a daily basis. And so that inspired the Reinvent the Toilet Project to figure out how to get access to all of these people. Because by that need not being met, you've got people that are getting sick, right? Because they're not being separated mm -hmm. from their waste. And there's all kinds of, as we know, pathogens and illness associated with contaminated food and water. You also affect, um, it impacts girls' ability to go to school. So if, a, if, a, if the school doesn't have a safe toilet for the girls by the time they reach puberty and start menstruating, they don't have a safe place to use a toilet, they stop going to school. Of course. So by not having a toilet, you've got half the population potentially in a community not getting educated. You might, there are other safety issues with this. Um, and illness, right? And then all the things that we all know now, I mean, I think as a global community, we understand the effect illness mm -hmm. and disease has on a population, on the economy, on education, the whole deal, right? So this is yes. a very fundamental, essential aspect of our human existence. And somehow I went from coral reef conservation to being completely focused on how we improve, how we get sustainable sanitation into coastal communities to make sure that it's not just now about polluting the ocean, but it's about the communities that live there and and um, their overall resilience and well-being. So it's got way more complicated, basically. Yeah, which is, I mean, and I want so I want to move back to reefs for a while, and then we can kind of bring it back together at the end. I'll say one last thing though on on this. I think the re the hardest part about the work you're doing is that. Quite frankly, it's a it's a hard sell. Most people don't want to talk about sewage. The the toilet to tap thing, I'm sure, is a hard concept to sell to the average person at first. 
And it's unfortunate because something we all obviously is part of everybody's right. lives. It's it's something that we all contribute. It's one of the few things we all contribute yes, to. Exactly. But and yet people, I think it's a taboo. You don't want to talk about it. It's it's kind of and, and so on a personal level, but then also when it comes to waste, when it comes to the stuff we throw away and it comes to excrement and all that kind of thing. Um, so what do you think we need to do? And we can, again, come back to this, but at a basic level to change public um, comfort yeah. with this subject. So you are singing my song. I love what you just said, because <laughs> this is what I talk about all day long. Um, yes, it is one of the things out there that we all make a contribution to in some way or the other. This We're all a part of this problem. Um, and we shouldn't feel bad about it. This is, this is part of human, this is part of human function, right? But we have to figure out a better way to deal with it. We just haven't figured it yeah. out. And I do believe, um, I don't have science on this, but so I like to have science on everything I say, but I believe that taboo is actually one of the biggest reasons that this still is a problem for us. And so what I think we need to do is break taboo, talk about it and normalize the conversation because we cannot solve a problem that people don't want to talk about, um, and we're playing, you know, this is something I'm playing around with, with a campaign we're launching in June, um, which I'm really excited about. We're working with really creative, um, with a really creative team. And I've talked about how I don't want to overwhelm people with a, yet another problem facing the oceans and mm -hmm. facing humanity. What I really want to focus on is solutions. And so we are not going to talk about ocean sewage pollution. We are going to rebrand poop and pee, and we are going to re-potty train the world. That's going to be the mission of our campaign. And it's going to be about talking, you know, talking about these things in plain English in a non-embarrassing way, maybe a fun and playful way, because it may not be sexy, but it's funny, right? Potty talk is hilarious yeah. <laughs> and you can get away with a lot. Um, in, in, and that when I've seen this be effective, it has been around humor. Um, because otherwise there's just a lot of doom and gloom. There's a lot of just overwhelm. It's just discomfort too. It's a yeah, mixture people don't want to talk about it. Individually, it's uncomfortable. And then at a societal level, right. it's a problem. So there's not a good angle to take other than, I guess, yeah. like levity I and, guess, is a good And then approach. interesting aspect for us in thinking about a global campaign to get people more interested and, and willing to have the conversation and get curious about the solutions is that taboo is very culturally specific. So in the US, when we talk about taboo and around, you know, poop and pee, it's like, we don't talk about it. It's impolite, you know, it's just not, you know, well, you go to Madagascar and there it's, it's considered taboo to have a toilet in your home. You know, or there are different parts of the world. I may be getting it wrong that it's Madagascar, but, or no, maybe it's that there's, it's, it's, it's gross to have a toilet in your home. People think that's disgusting because toilets are gross and dirty places that don't get well-managed and overflow. Um, and that's been their experience, or it's really disgusting to use the same toilet as another human being. Why would you ever sit on a toilet that somebody else had sat on? That's taboo. So there's like, Taboo is so complex and, and until, and it is, and it's beyond anything that you can immediately, like, I would have never guessed that it's taboo to have a toilet in your home. Right. But it make, once you think about it, you're like, I, I completely yeah, understand like, why, would why someone would yeah. think that. I always talk about how it's crazy that people leave toothbrushes and stuff right next to the toilet yeah. and all that. That blows, or what, leaving the seat up and stuff always makes yeah. me super uncomfortable 
Because to me, it's, hey, you know what this is, but you don't, again, this is not things you tend to speak on right. um, at all. Because right. it's, uh, it's, it's weird. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, we'd want to pretend this doesn't happen. And I think the more we talk about it, my experience has been, look, I have been invited to like fancy salons and fancy homes to talk about coral reefs. And I have not given a heads up to my hosts that I was actually going to come talk about sewage. And I talk about it in like at a fancy cocktail hour. Yes. And it's great because people are so excited. Like I've broken the barrier. And yeah. all of a sudden they want to tell me all of their poop stories. Like, I'm like, you know what? I don't really need <laughs> to hear all your poop stories. I'm just excited that you're open and want to hear more about this problem and we can talk about it. But I've had people come up and share really intimate things about their crazy experiences, going to the bathroom in the woods somewhere, whatever, you know? Yes. And it's funny. It's like, once you break the barrier, once you break the taboo, it's like we are repressed and people are just like, oh, you've given me permission to talk about this thing that I've just been holding inside, maybe not even sharing with my partner or my family. Awesome. And it's like, it's kind of freeing, you know, when you break taboo. Yeah, It's just social norms. And I, it's funny that this, you know, this is one example, but that's that concept of people as individuals, obviously are, are so unique, but so similar because we have so many shared experiences. But when you get to the social level, the the, the top level, people don't want to – there's certain things you say and certain things you don't. There's small talk that makes sense. There's small talk that doesn't. And I think as a whole, as a people, this is healthy because it helps you to be more of an individual, you know, in a, in a, in a, at a cocktail hour. On top of it, we can use that as a, as a way to make people say, you know what, this is an important topic – and to, and to fix maybe the waste problem. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of hitting two, two edges. Yeah. Me. I mean, I really love talking about it. I talk about it all the time. Um, we're creating, you know, animated films about it, a big campaign about mm -hmm. it so that people feel comfortable in the space because we cannot, you know, we can't solve a problem people don't know exists and we can't solve a problem that people are afraid to talk about. Right. So we have two different barriers that we're dealing with in the space right now, but I'm pretty optimistic. I'm seeing a lot of movement. And like I say, when we give people permission to talk about it, mm -hmm. they, the floodgates open up for better or for worse. Of course. <laughs> and we're, and well, I mean, we're getting more open as a culture, I think in general, talking about things. So this is one of those many things that I believe is going to get easier as we all kind of loosen up a little bit. Um, and there are so many good puns that I just have to refrain from Endless. making that we've had today Endless already. Uh, um, but let's move this into the coral reefs. So let's okay. work backwards. How did you, where's the bridge between this and, and the reefs that, that you've worked on in your career? Where, where did you make, start making, I know you talked about your experiences, um, on the Island with the flow. What other experiences kind of connected you to reefs and let's talk about the reefs and, and what you've done there. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of my work, I spent about nine or 10 years working on as the lead for the reef resilience network. And this was um, a capacity building venture, which basically means you're helping people do their work better. You're it's kind of like teaching, educating people. And we provided all kinds of different formats for that. Um, but in that work, what we were doing was trying to help people that manage coral reefs manage reefs so they could better withstand the impacts of climate change. So we're really focused on um, sea surface temperatures and, you know, the stress of high temperatures on coral reefs and also um, ocean acidification, which 
occurs because of um, CO2 deposition in the ocean, which is the whole greenhouse gas emissions story. Um, but so our work was all about how do you help managers help coral reefs be more resilient? Basically, you need to reduce the stress, the, the ambient stress that they're experiencing um, on a day-to-day -day basis so that when you have a big climatic event where you get high temperatures, hot summer, extended periods of heat, that the reefs will be in good condition. Like we talk about, it's just like, you know, having a good immune system, being in good shape when you get hit by the flu, you can deal with it better if you're, you know, have a stronger immune system. So to do that, reefs need to not be overfished, right? Which is one of the big emphases in um, coral, in, in marine conservation in general is overfishing, reducing the amount of our fishing activity so that it's not harming the ecology of the systems we're um, working to protect reducing um, physical damage, reefs are damaged by groundings, people, all kinds of different sort of physical contact kinds of damage. And then pollution, water quality is just really, really, really important for coral reefs. They um, require clear, new, low nutrient water. If you think of a reef, you know it's, it's happening in that crystal clear blue tropical water. That is clear because it's low in nutrients. We call that like an oligotrophic environment. So um, it's by definition nutrient poor, and that's good. That's good for reefs mm -hmm. because there's lots of light coming through. So they need all that light to photosynthesize and produce food and grow. So one of the biggest threats to coral reefs is pollution. And there's lots of different types of pollution. Um, what I have learned in the last decade is that one of the biggest contributions is actually sewage pollution or wastewater pollution. Um, it's one that doesn't hasn't gotten a lot of attention. And because of that, and as I realized how big of an issue it was, how much it had been ignored by the community I work in, um, in and also by the scientific community more broadly, I realized we needed to change that. And as somebody working to increase resilience in a coral reef system, it made sense to start tackling one of the things that affected that resilience that wasn't getting attention. So I was drawn to it because it's it's been ignored and it was a big one. Yeah. So I want to ask, because, you know, I mean, overfishing definitely is, is way more broadly discussed, more money goes into that than stuff like coastal development and the coastal communities and, uh, waste. And so why do you think that's the case? Is it a money thing? Is it a social thing? Why do you think overfishing gets the brunt of the uh, exposure as opposed to some of these other issues that equally affect, affect them? So, okay. So I think there's a couple of different reasons. One is definitely there's a, there's been a scientific bias um, around the effects of overfishing on marine environments in general. Um, definitely in the coral reef space. So I come from a lineage of um, scientists. We sort of, we talk about our, our academic lineage, um, just like you would think about your ancestral lineage. Um, I come from a lineage where the focus was on the impacts that fish had on seaweed communities. And my graduate advisor um, worked with his, the folks he worked with did the same sort of thing. They looked at these kinds of things and all of his peers at the time, this was back in the seventies, um, back in Jamaica and in Panama, there was this cluster of now the most well-respected coral reef ecologists in the world. They were all working together in grad school in Panama and Jamaica. And I have this whole theory 
that they were all sort of biasing each other around the importance of fish driving the community. And that they then went on to influence their own spheres so that there's this massive community now of people that focus on that particular aspect. And it was, I I look at it as a historical accident of science. These guys, it's all really good science, but it was, it was a, yeah, it's not malicious in any capacity. It's just, that's where the energy went. And it's not to de-emphasize the importance of herbivores are extremely important in coral reef systems in helping maintain the balance but there is also this role of water quality and it just kept getting dismissed. And so that's changing. I'm starting to see huge shifts in very, in the very, you know, in the last five, maybe 10 years, but going back to the seventies, so you're going back like 40 years, Mm -hmm. this has been the, the, where all the science has been and where all the energy has been. So, so that is a component of it. I do. I really, really believe that I've looked at the history. I'm like, this is so interesting because I can name the names of all these guys. They're all like really decorated coral reef ecologists um, that are phenomenal scientists, but they were just, you know, you're a scientist, you focus on what's right in front of you. And Mm -hmm. um, they tend to get really, really specific in a particular field. The other thing I think about this that um, I'm sure I, I wonder I I may not be very popular in saying this, but I think (laughs) the fishing community is, while not necessarily an easy community to engage with, fishermen are, um, I, yeah, fishermen are, you know, these are people that have been working in these, in these livelihoods for generations. They are, um, it's, it's their identity. It's important for them to pass on their livelihood to their future children and grandchildren. They are very, um, I don't even know, how, I don't want to categorize a group of people, but these are strong, passionate, and powerful voices, right? Um, and so they are not as powerful as a hotel or a, you know, big conglomerate, you know, some, you know, corporate um corporate, some regional corporation, maybe it's a hotel chain or it's an oil refinery, or it's a, you know, I worked in a place that had an oil refinery, a rum factory and a um, aluminum refinery in St. Croix. Okay. So all of these, you can imagine major polluters into the environment. Nobody wanted to touch the pollution. They wanted to focus on the fishermen in St. Croix because the fishermen was a tiny community and yes, they were powerful and, and they were politically powerful, even though they were small. Um, but they weren't nearly as powerful as the, the oil refinery <laughs> and cruising, cruising rum and, yes. um, you know, whatnot. So I think that, um, it's a small stakeholder group compared to those that have all of the money and are developing coastlines and the government. Well, it's, it's a minority, it's a minority uh, opinion, a minority group of most people care less about the fishing community. Like the average person, especially if you're inland or in another country, it's not a big important thing to you. And so it's harder to care about that community's voice, which I think, is, right. I think it's a difficulty in general in the Caribbean is you have these, whether it's even if it's if it's you know bottling water, you have all these different uh, industries that are there that severely negatively impact their environments. I can't remember the percentage, but it, an overwhelming majority of Caribbean animal life and marine life have been destroyed in the last 50, 60 years. And 
all this industrialization has these huge negative impacts, but it, people don't think about it. It's not something that affects you on an every, right. everyday basis, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think like basically when you're looking at trying to make a difference, a lot of times because it's so overwhelming, there's mm. so much, there's so many different problems to solve. <laughs> like, there's so many major issues. You know, going for low hanging yes. fruit, going for, okay, well, let's look at the fishing issue and let's see if we're fishing sustainably is one that seems like a logical place to go because mm somebody on the ground, an, an NGO, you know, a conservation yeah. organization, or even a small government, they may look at like, I know this when we live, when I lived in St. Croix, like Hovensa, which I don't even know what it's called now, but it was called Hovensa, the oil refinery um, that was there. Nobody was dared consider tackling the, that pollution. They were like, where would we begin? How would we even get in, get in a meeting mm-hmm. or a conversation? Like they were inaccessible because of how big they were. And so they had a lot of power, right? And they also brought in, I think, tons of tax money of to the government, right? So they had power. It's economy, in money, too. all that kind of stuff, yeah. So, you know, it's complicated, but I think there are, you know, and it's visible. That's the other thing, right? So you can see when your fish populations are declining. You can see when people are bringing in way more fish than the community can maybe consume or buy. Um, it's a visible threat. It's certainly a big threat, it's certainly one that needs to be addressed. So I don't mean to, to diminish that at all, but the pollution problem is generally hard to see, right? And so you only see the effects. You see overgrowth of algae, you see loss of fish, healthy fish populations, but oh, that could maybe be the, from overfishing. It's really hard to tease that apart, right? So it's complicated by the fact that we're not we don't, we're not running a scientific experiment where we can control everything and understand the impacts of each threat. They're all interwoven. That's why pollution is such a hard thing to tackle because it's because pollution yeah. is 15 things working together to create an issue and it takes so much time to even identify what all those issues are, much less fix them where you can say, if there's a fish issue, why not look at fishing? And then if right. there is if there is an issue with fishing, you spend 30 years developing what those issues are. And you don't look at the big refinery sitting right there on the water right. as well, you know, and that's, that's exactly. Yeah. And you can see if the fish populations come back and know that, oh, we made a difference because we started fishing more sustainably. Yes. Whereas with pollution, because there's so many different sources of pollution, yes. it could be household, industrial, agriculture, that it's hard to tell if what you've done has made a difference unless you're addressing all of the problems. Right. Mm-hmm. So it is so hard to do. Yeah. Indeed. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think people are overwhelmed by the problem. And that's one of the reasons why it. Well, and that's a lot of the scientific issues and even social issues. You see all these problems. It's just people saying, what do I do? And I want to relate that to, I think when it comes to coastal reefs, Americans don't tend to care. And so I want to, it's something that most people in the United States don't see. Right. But when you look at like the Carolinas and things, there is, so I want to talk about, um, I don't know, the impacts the coral reefs have for the United States, yep. kind of localize it. Because when you think of coral reefs, you think of a lot of people will think of Australia yep. or you think of the Caribbean and you don't think about home. So right. if you could talk for a bit about that and that aspect of your career, I'd, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. So there's two things. One is that the United States actually has quite a lot of coral reefs. Um, before we get into folks that don't live near a reef, um, we've got a huge reef tract along the Florida coast. Hawaii is surrounded by reefs. And then we have 
four territories. Am I going to get this wrong? There's the Marianas, Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Islands. Sorry. Nice. Um, Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, Samoa, and Guam. Those are all U.S. territories, and they all have extensive reef systems. So coral mm. reefs really are the, the – the U.S. government has a whole coral reef task force and um, big coral reef conservation programs dedicated to protecting coral reefs under U.S. Um, mm-hmm. uh control, I guess is the best way to say it. Cause they're not like they're territories rather than States. So we have a lot of reefs in the U S. Um, but to think about how reefs benefit you or why you should care about them. Say if you're living in Oklahoma, there are a couple of different ways. One that I think will resonate now more than it ever has before, which is there are about a half a billion people that rely on reefs around the world. So that's, again, B, billion. Um, They rely on them for food, jobs, coastal protection. So reefs protect coastlines um, and just general, the general economy of these places. So half a billion people are dependent, are reef dependent. So as we see reefs decline and as we lose large portions of reefs around the world, those people need to find food, jobs, and, and basically habitat place they can live safely. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're, they're potentially displaced and they're going to be going somewhere else to, to get those needs met. And I think we can understand now after going through this year of global pandemic, how interconnected we all are and how connected we are to crises in other parts of the world. So the thing about the reef crisis is it's very close to us. It's, it's right next to us when we're talking about Caribbean countries and the countries that are very reef dependent. So there's a whole geopolitical question. And I think of them as, you know, we talk about climate refugees, coral reef refugees would be a subset of that. So, so there's a whole issue of understanding that there are half a billion people around the world that need and rely on um, healthy coral reefs. But then there's this other space that I find really um, compelling and and it's around the role of medicine. Okay, so I think of coral reefs as the medicine chests of the sea. And the reason being is they are really chock full of um, chemical compounds, they're really rich in chemistry. And science has really really taken advantage of that. The reason they're rich in chemistry is the same reason that the rainforest is rich in chemistry. We've got all this diversity and everything's sort of stuck in place. So coral reefs are what we call sessile organisms. That means they're stuck to the bottom. They don't move. And so they have to communicate through chemistry. So they need to know if their neighbor is their next meal or their next mate, right? And they do that through chemistry. You definitely want to know the difference between your your mate or your meal, right? For all of us, but definitely for reefs. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So, So they communicate with chemistry. They send all kinds of chemical messages And so we take advantage of that chemistry. And um, I actually used to work with a chemical ecologist where they would go out on cruises and harvest small amounts of sponges and different types of sea life on reefs that were known to produce lots of chemistry and or chemical compounds. Um, And then they would check them for antiviral properties and anti-cancer properties and all kinds of things like that. So There are um, currently hundreds and hundreds of different compounds that come from coral reefs 
that are being tested or are already being used. So if you know somebody that's had um, lymphoma in the last 30 to 40 years, they've been treated with a drug that came from a coral reef sponge. Um, there are drugs being used for pain medicine, um, other cancers, AIDS, Alzheimer's, all kinds of different um, human, serious human ailments. They're they finding cures and treatments from coral reef organisms. So I see it as really dangerous for us to allow ourselves to lose these reefs when they could have the answers to the, to, you know, huge medical challenges that we're currently facing. So, um, yeah, I mean, I usually sum it up foods, jobs, coastal security and medicine, but I kind of went in more detail, which is great. That's, I, I like having that. I think with something like the coral reef systems, it's good to know more, more of this kind of stuff, because again, it's stuff that you don't hear about. These are concepts that aren't hot topics. They're not broadly discussed. You may know, oh, the reefs are in danger and that's about it. So I, I'm, I'm glad that you have, obviously, a lot of those details to kind of bring in. And I want to, we're finishing up here. So I want to kind of move back out when it comes to reef protection. It comes to, I mean, one of those big concepts, you talk about the sewage pollution, Um what would you leave the audience with? What would you leave people with in terms of what the average person needs to do in their head to think differently about these kind of concepts? What's like a piece of advice or a piece of knowledge you've gained in your career that has served you well and you think would, it serves generally the population well in terms of understanding this these concepts differently, in terms of thinking uh, critically about some of these things? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I think – I think that it's a pretty, it's pretty overwhelming when you think about all the different environmental problems we're facing, you know, we're getting bombarded with all kinds of information about climate change and pollution and plastics. And, and there's always another, you know, movie that's coming out talking about some horrible, unpronounceable chemical that's in our drinking water, right. Or fracking or whatever it is. Like it's all around us and it's overwhelming. So what I would say to somebody in terms of engaging is to just start and not feel like there is the perfect thing to start with or one thing to start with. But what I have found is that as you begin, you sort of chip away and you, and the the more you do, the more you want to do and the more expansive your engagement gets. And ultimately probably the most powerful thing you can do because all conservation is local, is to really get engaged and feel emboldened to get engaged in what, how decisions are being made in your own community, right? So that means showing up, like really showing up at those meetings where decisions are made about where your energy is going to come from, how you're treating your waste, what are you doing with your recycling? Is that really getting recycled and how to address that and what to do in that community? So so it's really getting engaged, but it might need a few steps before that, right? To get yourself feeling like good about what you've done, maybe more knowledgeable what you've done. Maybe you spent more time getting educated in the process, but things build on each other. And I think it's just taking that step. But, you know, when I, when people ask me specifically, cause I am, all I do is talk about sewage pollution these days. I just like to emphasize to people that, um, What you do in your home life actually does affect the ocean. All drains, as Nemo says, lead to the ocean. So personal care products, medical 
you know, drugs that you're using, um, you know, household products, lawn fertilizers, all of those things end up in the aquifer, end up in the river, they end up in the ocean. So really thinking about where things are going and being more responsible about disposal and even reducing, you know, when people talk about reduce, reuse, recycle, recycle is the last resort. It's the last thing you want to be doing. You'd much better off for the environment and for yourself and your future to reduce, just reduce. And, and if I could say anything, it would be just figure out the ways that you can reduce something, whether it's how much you use plastic whether it's how much you drive, um, you know, whatever it is, start stepping back. And those aren't going to solve the world's problems, but they're going to get you on a path of making a change, a bigger change and engaging in bigger ways in your community. And then I would say talking about it to everybody, but don't be too annoying when you do it. Yeah. (laughs) Don't, (laughs) Don't be annoying, but talk enough to get people to think about it. And I think that's good. I think the concept of reducing and reusing is huge. And even as it keeps you, it makes you think critically, which is if for no other reason, it makes you think critically about the life that you're leading. It's not just buying a soda and throwing away the bottle. I mean, that's a thing. It, yeah. Just because it's out of your eyes doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There's no object in permanence for nature. It has to right. deal with it. Someone has to deal with it. Why not you? You know. Um, yeah. I think the locality point is huge as well. Um, we can't solve the world's problems. We can solve our own. I grew up on Lake Ontario. I spent the last few years living on the Hudson Valley River. And uh, it you see stuff like trash in the water. And, and it's just important to think about what you can do, even if it's a little bit, to make any sort of difference. So, Stephanie, thank you for coming on to the show today. I had a great time talking to you about these issues. It was fun, and I learned a lot. So I want to say thanks. Um, if you have any social media or websites you want to plug at all, feel free to do that now. We'll put them in the description as well. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was fun to talk about. I love it when I get to talk shit. Um, (laughs) And I would say that we um, will be launching the Ocean Sewage Alliance at oceansewagealliance.com in June on World Oceans Day. And we will have lots of fun social media around that and fun videos. And so we will, I'll probably share that back with you when um, we launch because it will be great to, to get people tuned into that. Totally. Yeah. Send it and we can, uh, we'll, we'll push it on our socials. Maybe we can have some fun communication on the Twitter sphere. Uh, if you want to come back in June, you're launching it. Uh, I'd love to have you on again, or if there's ever anything, um, I'm asking people this, if there's ever anything more specific you want to get into, um, at any point, uh, I'd love to have you on for another episode at any, any time. So that'd be great. Thanks for coming on to the show today. Thanks, John. It was my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. If you like what you saw, you can find us on Twitter at Blue Earth Podcast or Blue Earth Pod. You can always reach out to us in our email basket at blueearthpod at gmail.com. If you have questions, comments, someone you want to have us have on, contact link, anything like that. Um, And we post every single week. So until next week, I want to say thank you as always for listening. And remember that anyone can get involved and everybody has an obligation to do right by not only our oceans, but our world. Thank you.